A quick warning, this episode contains vivid discussions of slavery and violence. He was born into slavery and treated with savagery and inhumanity. But he secretly taught himself to read. Then he escaped bondage to become America's most revered abolitionist and wrote the most famous anti-slavery memoir in history. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Frederick Douglass. I'm Brandon Pope. Today, how Frederick Douglass overcame all odds to escape slavery and become a gifted orator, a leader of his people, and one of the most famous Americans in the 19th century. Joining us is Douglass's great, great, great grandson, Ken Morris. His blood flows through my veins, yeah. and I carry his DNA. The Emmy-winning actor who has given his voice to Douglas many times, Jeffrey Wright. He's on the level of the superhero, um, a historical superhero. And the author of the Pulitzer-winning biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, Professor David Blight. Douglas is a pathway into understanding what this country is about and who we are. How Frederick Douglass became Frederick Douglass. Today on Making. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. Like so many millions of the enslaved, he knew very little about himself. I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen any authentic record containing it. By far, the larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs. And it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. Douglas barely knew his mother. They were separated shortly after his birth, and she died a few years later. As for his father... My father was a white man. He was admitted to be such by all I ever heard speak of my parentage. The opinion was also whispered that my master was my father. But of the correctness of this opinion, I know nothing. The means of knowing was withheld from me. Douglas was raised by his grandmother in a small cabin outside the plantation until he was old enough to work. He was six years old when his grandmother walked him 12 miles through the woods and left him at the plantation. Once there, one of his first memories was the lashing of his aunt. He commenced to lay on the heavy cowskin, and soon the warm red blood, amid heart-rending shrieks from her and horrid oaths from him, came dripping to the floor. For the next few years, Douglas witnessed, or was subject to, all the horrors of slavery, from basic indecencies and casual violence to outright murder. Then, the first lucky break of his life, Douglas was chosen to live with a family in Baltimore to serve as a companion for their young son. This good spirit was from God, and to him I offer thanksgiving and praise. What you just heard was the voice of Jeffrey Wright narrating the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass for Apple Books. Sounding great there, Jeffrey. No, appreciate it. (laughs) Appreciate it. Good words. It's It's the words more so than anything else. It helps to have a good uh, script to go by. So, David Blight, I'm going to come to you now. You're Douglas's biographer, and Douglas, he witnessed and experienced 
a lot of trauma in his early years of life. Can you mm. speak to his understanding of injustice as just a child? I mean, he, he was born into obviously a terrifying world and the human brain is good at coping and tricking itself into believing things are in order. So what does Douglas see on the plantation and how does he internalize that? What was his kind of feeling around injustice around that time? Oh, I love that question. And your point about trauma is absolutely true. Trauma is a modern word. And sometimes, you know, we bandy it about so everything's traumatic. But this is a kid who grew up living with, once he's old enough to be aware of it, a process of daily humiliation. Now, Douglas would always say in a hundred ways that his greatest fears about slavery and his deepest sense of what slavery did to people was its threat to the mind, its, its ability to destroy you know, the mental stability, or for that matter, to create ignorance. He was always arguing you know, slavery is a system of ignorance. So what we find in that narrative is a 27-year-old trying to piece together that story of his youth into what becomes now abolitionist propaganda. He's recruiting you as a reader into the abolition movement with these stories. But the good news about the narrative and and the second much longer and even greater autobiography is that almost all of the essential details, names, places, most events, is verifiable and has been verified. He isn't just making up all these things. He saw what he writes about. But then he has that ability as an artist, as a prose artist, to put it into story form, which just draws you in and makes it a page turner. Absolutely. We're going to we're going to dive deeper into the narrative uh, here in a few minutes. But this uh, this conversation around trauma, you know, I think about the trauma kids nowadays endure from Chicago to California. I think. They could all benefit from from reading your book, David, and from reading the writings of Frederick Douglass. I do want to fast forward a little bit to Baltimore. Ken Morris, just to remind everybody, you're Douglass's great, great, great grandson. And I want to ask you about Douglass going to Baltimore. He was just seven years old. Why did Douglass call this moment divine providence? On the plantation on the eastern shore of Maryland, he said he was the first, last, and only choice to go to Baltimore to be the house servant for his his master's family. And there were a lot of enslaved children on that plantation. And so he described that in his first autobiography as, as some sort of divine inter- intervention, but it wasn't until his second autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, where he described it as divine providence in his favor. And when he gets to Baltimore, he, he's now in the big city. He's around free black children and he's around poor white children. Uh, but what happens most importantly when he gets there, his slave mistress, Sophia Auld, had never had a slave before, didn't know that it was illegal to teach him to read and write, and he asked her to teach him. So she begins to teach him his ABCs, and and that was all he really needed was that little spark of light into his mental bondage. And so the lessons would continue for a little while until his enslaver, Hugh Auld, found out about them, and when Hugh Auld found out, he got angry got really mad. And he looked at his wife and he looked at young Frederick. And this is how Frederick described it in his autobiographies. He said, you cannot teach a slave how to read and write, because if you do, it will unfit him to be a slave. Hmm. And Frederick looked at his enslaver and he thought, hmm, 
If you don't want me to have this, I'm going to do everything in my power to gain it. And he really understood right then and there that knowledge is power. And when we talk about the relevance of Frederick Douglass's words today, that's something that young people hear. Knowledge is power. And Frederick understood that education equaled emancipation. Education equals liberation. Education equals freedom. And he would teach himself to read and write. Ken, can you, can you dive deeper on how extraordinary it was for an enslaved child to learn how to read? How extraordinary it would be for anybody <laughs> to teach themselves how to read and write. It's amazing. And again, you know, it shows his brilliance as, as a young boy. And so he's carrying in his pocket bread or biscuits, and he's trading those biscuits for reading lessons. And we spend a lot of time at our organization, Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives and Schools, And I always talk about this story that Frederick Douglass wrote in his autobiography, how he was always so hungry as a slave child. He always had this pit of hunger in his stomach that would never go away. And on occasion, when he would get food, the overseer would take cornmeal mush and throw it into a trough similar to what pigs would eat out of. And all of the children, including Frederick, would crawl on their hands and knees to try to eat what little food was in there to eat like animals. And so if you think of this little boy that is hungry, that he would trade something of such great importance, food of such great value to him for reading lessons. And the young students that I interact with, they always get it. They'll say, so Mr. Morris, what you're telling me is Frederick would rather feed his mind and have his stomach go empty. And that's exactly what he did. And it's just an amazing story. And when Mr. Ald learned that his wife was teaching Douglas his ABCs, He immediately forbade it and basically said that literacy would make him forever unfit to be a slave. And, you know, Douglas must have heard this and thought, Eureka, this is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and he would be running away with himself. (laughs) Exactly. Which, in fact, he did later. And Brandon, Douglas later would use that moment and he would say, you know, when Hugh all told his wife to stop teaching me. That was the first anti-slavery speech I ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. Well, he was always an ironist, always an ironist. Yes, yes. Now, Jeffrey, when you you read these accounts and you hear these accounts, what stood out to you from this time in Douglas's life? What what really struck you? Speaking of the trauma, you talked about other cities around the country. Uh, That was one thing that I was struck with, which here is this extraordinary exemplar life led by this man. And yet, just literally across the street from his homestead in southeast D.C. is some of the most decimated, desolated, deprived, trauma-stricken uh, communities in this country. I mean, it's, 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 it's dense over there. It's thick. And so th- th- I think that was maybe the overarching thing that struck me. What have we learned as a society, What is particularly among the black community, what have we learned and what have we, what, how have we been strengthened by, by his victories? And I'm not sure, um, in, in fact, I'm certain that we have not, to the extent that we should, uh, ideally more conversations like this will bring more attention to him and to the lessons that he's, he's left for us and to uh, his readings. But they say, you know, if you want to find the most drug addled and, and, and violence ridden communities in, in, in American cities, look for Martin Luther King Boulevard, you know, really unfortunate. Sadly it applies uh, in this instance as well. We, we, there's such a huge gap between the power of his life and uh, the potential impact to be had. And still some chains to be broken. Yes, sir. At age 15, 
Douglas's life was brutally interrupted again. He was forced to leave Baltimore. He sailed back to the plantation and was immediately sent to a notorious slave breaker, Edward Covey. Mr. Covey had acquired a very high reputation for breaking young slaves, and this reputation was of immense value to him. Douglas was whipped continually and treated barbarically for six months. Then, one day, he resisted. At this moment, from whence came the spirit, I don't know. I resolved to fight, and suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat, and as I did so, I rose. He held on to me, and I to him. They fought for nearly two hours before Covey relented. This battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. I felt as I never felt before. My long-crushed spirit rose. Cowardice departed. Bold defiance took its place. And I now resolved that, however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. Now, Ken... When I was learning about Frederick Douglass in school, his fight with Edward Covey was probably the moment that struck me the most as a kid. I remember I actually I drew I drew a scene uh, with my crayons. Yeah, I, I drew a scene with my crayons of that, um, and I think that's what latched me on to the Frederick Douglass story uh, to begin with. Uh, how important was this fight, Ken? The fight was everything. It was an act of of self-liberation. And so when he begins to teach himself to read and write, that was the first act of self-liberation. But this battle, which was an epic two-hour battle, and Frederick knew that he needed to be strategic in the way that he went about defeating Covey. But when when he did, you know, he while he wasn't physically free from his bondage, he was on his way to being mentally free. And he rose up. And he fought back. And so if you can just imagine this strong, brilliant uh, teenage boy who had had enough and so fought back. He won that battle and Covey never touched him again for the rest of the time that he'd been hired out. And so it's a, um, a battle that certainly resonates with, with young people. And I love telling the story because if you can just really visualize, you know, this young boy that's just saying, OK, I'm done with this. A man has been made a slave, but now you've seen how a slave has been made a man. Oh, yes. We got to remember how talented Douglas was as a writer. He sets up that whole scene and essentially a biblical story. And you got to remember now, by the time he writes this, he's deeply steeped by then in, in biblical writings and the King James cadences and so on. Yeah, that's a resurrection story. Because what precedes it is is the story of him. He's just beaten to a pulp. He's lost his will, and he just runs to the woods. He tries to go back to old Thomas Auld and beg for protection and help. And Thomas Auld says, nope, get out of here. You're going back to Covey. And Douglas' tail between his legs does go back. But then he just cracks. He just cracks, and it just, just takes Covey on. The fight becomes a kind of resurrection through violence, which is a very common theme in our culture. Americans love that resurrection. I mean, that's what Westerns are kind of about in some ways, or at least the old ones, resurrection through violence. So our man here knew what he was doing as a storyteller 
two hours? Eh, who knows? <laughs> Maybe it was 10 minutes. Maybe it was one hour. We don't know. But also, it, it is the pivot of the book, as Ken was just saying. It's the pivot of the story. Because after that, he's becoming a man. I think what it represents, too, it goes against, I think, the mythology of emancipation, you know, all praises to Abraham Lincoln and, you know, we're waiting for the white savior, you know, to uh, to free the lowly enslaved. But it's Douglas exercising agency. <laughs> it's Douglas grabbing the beginnings of freedom, at least freedom of the mind, as described earlier, too, gra- grabbing it by the throat. And it's about his own recognition of what is necessary. And it's taking his future precariously and literally in his own, into his own hands. And he's doing that not solely against Covey, not solely against this one individual, but against an entire system. You know, he's taking up the cause himself and, and getting after it and seeing about it. And I mean, that's, that it just speaks more to his heroicism uh, as well. It's just a clearly incredibly powerful moment. And the courage it takes, too. I just, sure. It's, it's, it gives you chills. Yeah. All right, more Making Frederick Douglass in a minute. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This kid, at whatever stage we take him at, like every other kid, I think, learned the one thing he was good at, and that was language. I mean, some kids are good at dribbling behind their back, and some are good at whatever, playing a violin. But he learned he was good with language. And that was becoming his his little power. And any way he could wield that power on somebody, he was going to do it. Douglas had taken on Covey and won. The fight made him a bit of a celebrity amongst the other enslaved people. But Douglas also knew how to read and write. And he used that to speak, to teach, and to fight back. In coming to a fixed determination to run away, we did more than Patrick Henry when he resolved upon liberty or death. With us, it was a doubtful liberty at most, and almost certain death if we failed. For my part, I should prefer death to hopeless bondage. He and four friends plotted a bold and dangerous escape. They would steal a canoe, row 70 miles north through the Chesapeake Bay to the free state of Pennsylvania. They were immediately found out. They awaited their fate in a nearby jail. Douglas, the ringleader, thought his master, Thomas Auld, would sell him to a plantation in the Deep South, a life sentence. I thought the possibility of freedom was gone. I was now left to my fate. But then, another stroke of luck. From some cause or other, he did not send me to Alabama, but concluded to send me back to Baltimore to live again with his brother Hugh 
and to learn a trade. Ken, after Douglas's failed escape attempt, why was he sent back to Baltimore and not the Deep South? Back to that divine providence in his favor, and, and we can call it luck. Uh, but there was just something in my mind that was happening spiritually in his life uh, that you can look at from his birth until the time he escaped. And he always had people that were there to help him along the way. And of course, he would take advantage of that. And I always want to go back to this idea that it's about self-liberation, um, not just this myth that we've been given in American history that it was um, several white men sitting around the table that freed the slaves, but the as Jeffrey was talking about, the agency that we as a people took um, for our own liberation. And so I, I can't explain why he wasn't sent down to the Deep South. It was meant that he be sent back to, to Baltimore. Well, I would just add that the... The answer to that also lies somewhere deep in the psyche of one Thomas Ald, his owner at that point, who walked into that jail cell in Easton, Maryland, and could have chosen to sell him for between $800 and $1,000, which is a heck of a lot of money uh, at that point. Uh, but he sends him to Baltimore for reasons we may never know. Uh, one theory has always been that Ald was really his father, but that's not been proven. Uh, another might be just that he knew Douglas was a lousy slave. <laughs> I mean, really, he wasn't working out. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's possible, it's possible that even Ald, who was a pretty brutal guy and himself not very educated, had a weak spot for the 18-year-old Fred. It's possible. In Baltimore, Douglas fell in love with Anna Murray, a free black woman. She helped him escape, first to Philadelphia and then to New York. I have been frequently asked how I felt when I found myself in a free state. I have never been able to answer the question with any satisfaction to myself. It was a moment of the highest excitement I ever experienced. I suppose I felt as one may imagine the unarmed mariner to feel when he is rescued by a friendly man of war from the pursuit of a pirate. In writing to a dear friend immediately after my arrival at New York, I said I felt like one who had escaped a den of hungry lions. So, David, I'll go to you on this one. How did Douglas meet Anna Murray and how instrumental was she in Douglas's life and his escape? She was extremely instrumental uh, in his escape and, and then ultimately, of course, in his life as the mother of their five children and the maker of their home for nearly 44 years. Anna was free. She was actually born free. Uh, she had a good job, such as it was, for a black woman in Baltimore working as a domestic servant in the home of a rich white family. I say a good job, a secure job. She wasn't going to make a real living at it, but she had a situation, so to speak. She clearly was swept off her feet by this young, handsome guy, and he was by her. Because two years later, they hatched this escape plot together. And there is evidence that she helped him put together his sailor's outfit, his sailor's uniform, so to speak, that he escaped in. But his escape was an unusual kind of escape. Uh, it is not in any way the 
traditional underground railroad that people may imagine. Uh, he didn't go from some, you know, one farm to the next, one site to the next. He planned this all out himself. But she had her bags packed. She got on the same three trains, three steamboats, and came into lower Manhattan where she joined Frederick. And they were married about uh, 48 hours later. But this was how Douglas escaped. Anna was very much part of it. Uh, she took the same risks that he did. She had the same bravery that he did. And after their marriage, they took a steamer up to Newport, Rhode Island, from which they took a carriage all the way to New Bedford, Massachusetts. Douglas and Anna Murray settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He became a licensed preacher, made friends with noted abolitionists, and attended anti-slavery meetings. At one meeting, he was unexpectedly invited to speak. It was a severe cross, and I took it up reluctantly. The truth was, I felt myself a slave, and the idea of speaking to white people weighed me down. I spoke but a few moments when I felt a degree of freedom and said what I desired with considerable ease. From that time until now, I have been engaged in pleading the cause of my brethren. With what success and with what devotion, I leave those acquainted with my labors to decide. Ken, I want to ask you about this anti-slavery convention in Nantucket. I imagine Frederick Douglass was one of the few, if not the only formerly enslaved person who was asked to speak there. Uh, Can you tell us about that moment, what he said and what effect it had? Now, he didn't go to the convention with the intention to speak, but when the white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison and his supporters and followers heard that they had this, what we would have called at that time a fugitive slave in the audience, we call those people freedom seekers now, and they asked Frederick, will you just stand up? Tell the audience your story. What was it like to be enslaved? And Frederick wrote in his first autobiography, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. He said, I was so nervous that first time speaking in front of a white audience. But when he stood up, he had this natural gift for communication. He was charismatic. He was eloquent. He was theatrical and even funny in talking about some of the descriptions and the characters that he came into contact with while he was enslaved. And the Garrisonians understood that they had this star on their hands, and perhaps Frederick could be a protege of William Lloyd Garrison. And so they asked him to join the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society as a paid lecturer And he would travel from town to town, city to city, just telling his story. Then he started to have a problem. And that problem was people started to doubt that he had ever been enslaved. They couldn't wrap their minds around what they thought a slave looked and sounded like and what they were hearing in this eloquent, charismatic, good-looking man in Frederick Douglass. So in order to prove he was who he claimed to be, he published that first autobiography, The Narrative. And then he had another problem. It becomes a bestseller. Hmm. And that's the last thing that I think you want is the notoriety of a bestselling book if you're trying to hide from your enslaver because it made him a household name, made him a celebrity, what we would call an A-list celebrity today, like like a Jeffrey Wright. (laughs) And and he, um, you know, he he had to now flee to Europe really as uh, for a couple of years, which became kind of a cooling off period because his the notori- notoriety of that book threatened his freedom. 
Douglas would have been an A plus celebrity. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. You know, David, I do want to get to the narrative and talk a little more about that. Uh, what did this do for Frederick Douglass? What changes in his life when this happens? He mentioned at this point, this is this is a best selling book. He could stand up and put that book in his hand. Uh, our radio audience can't see that I'm actually holding it. Uh, he would he would stand up with that book in his hand and said, this is who I am. You think black people aren't educated. You think black people don't write. You think we don't have a history. Yes, we do. And here's my story. And by the way, he was only 23, as Ken was so beautifully saying, 23 when he stands up in Nantucket at that old Athenaeum and gives that first speech. And then they invited him back the next morning to speak again. Tell some more stories, kid. Uh and by the way, uh, that narrative did take the world by storm. It sold 30,000 copies in the first five years. There are a lot of authors who would kill to sell 30,000 copies of anything today. Uh, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back to this oratory, you know, that he, he, he talks about and the ways in which we kind of perceive Lincoln as this almost unimpeachable character. There's a speech that he gives on the unveiling of the emancipation statue in Lincoln Park in D.C. That is, if there's a better encompassing of the contradictions that Lincoln represented, I haven't read it. It's just extraordinary. It's a, you know, he holds Lincoln in the highest regard, but he sees him as a man very clearly. And like all men, flawed. And his flaws are very specific to a white supremacist uh, character of the nation and of that time. It's just, I just, again, I'm telling everybody to go read Douglas, but don't leave that off the uh, off the desk when you're reading it. Man, if absolutely. I could take that as a cue. Go I for mean, it, David, yeah. Boy, boy, Jeffrey, you just set it up. I started my biography of Douglas with that speech. I placed the reader in 1876 and spent, I don't know, 10 pages on it because I too find it. I think it's his second greatest speech after the 4th of July speech, but, but it's just such, such a point. My fellow white citizens, you are Abraham Lincoln's children. I and my people are only his stepchildren. I mean, that's not a speech that was just some sort of throwaway occasion. You know, that is an honest speech. And he's speaking truth to power when you consider who his audience was. Incredible. And yeah. um, they must have, must have been thinking, why do we invite this guy to speak? <laughs> We're supposed to be honoring Lincoln. Yeah. yeah. I, I believe yeah. Ulysses Grant was in the audience. Uh, Grant pulled the, the cord to <laughs> unveil the monument. <laughs> in fact, I went to Grant's papers to try to th- maybe is there some note he wrote after? What did Grant think of this? You know, yeah. not a word. Grant must have gone back to the White House, had a cigar and taken a nap. And a scotch. <laughs> of course. Something like that. <laughs> Jeffrey, can, yeah. can you picture, you know, Frederick Douglass stood out there in front of a crowd, public speaking? What, what do you imagine he would have been like? He, he, for one, he is unimpeachably credible, right? Yeah. So he's got an advantage. There are few people in that audience, and certainly not the Ulysses S. Grants of the world, who have a deeper more personal, but also uh, more evolved understanding of what he's, what he's talking about. You know, he, he's been through a lot. He's been in tougher rooms uh, than any of the rooms that he's speaking in. So, and this, I think, speaks to another 
question that we have about the value of returning to these slave narratives and uh, for black folks, particularly, you know, there's a shame, I think that uh, there's a vein of shame that runs through our relationship to that history for, for understandable reasons. But uh, what I take from Douglas, you know, as it relates to his ability to be comfortable in any and every room of his time, was the strength that he gathered, that he won from having come out of the circumstances that he emerged out of. That, I mean, that, that was a, you know, that was a man who couldn't be broken. David, let, let's talk about Abraham Lincoln. How did Douglas influence Lincoln over the course of his life? Did he, did he move him any closer when it came to the issue of slavery? Well, Douglas and Lincoln had a very testy relationship at first. And during the first uh, almost two years of the war, Douglas was a fierce critic of Lincoln's. Uh, Douglas wanted the Lincoln administration to act much faster on emancipation than it did. Now, they were not in any way warm and bosom friends, and no one should really make the case that they became very close. They didn't. But it's in August of 1863 that Douglas first decides to go to Washington, D.C. and demand an audience with the president. And he got it. He didn't have any invitation, but he got it. He went on that occasion ostensibly to protest uh, the many discriminations that were being practiced against black soldiers. That first meeting was a little testy, but Douglas did leave there saying things like, He had never been in the presence of a powerful white man who treated him as an equal as much as Lincoln did. A year later, August of 64, they will have an even more extraordinary meeting at the White House, in Lincoln's office, at Lincoln's invitation. Because at that point, Lincoln believed that he probably was going to lose the election. And he wanted the advice of the most prominent, most famous African-American leader in the country. Douglas was stunned because Lincoln actually asked Douglas, looked him in the eye and asked him to organize a system of funneling black people, of funneling slaves out of the upper south into the north behind union lines into some form of legal freedom in case Lincoln lost the election. That's how serious Lincoln took the likelihood of losing the 64 presidential election. Their relationship went from distant, suspicious, even angry hostility on Douglas's part at the beginning of the war to a much more respectful, even admirable relationship by the end of the war. He was the one black leader, spokesman, that Lincoln actually reached out to for serious personal advice. And that was a very rare thing at that point in American history. So, Jeffrey, I want to ask you, we see a lot of biopics about historical figures. Why have we not seen a a Frederick Douglass film yet? The story we're telling right now just seems ripe for a film. Why do you think we haven't had one yet? No, that's a good question. We've seen him appear in a couple of films here. In fact, I think it was a Glory happened to be on. And there's yeah. a moment in Glory where Frederick oh. Douglass 
yeah. is there in the, 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 the painting on the wall is more animated. It's just yeah. incredible. It's no a bad cameo. It's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, and, and also they that. they have they have the white haired statesman when he would have yeah, been yeah, in yeah. his mid forties. Yeah, he's forty two. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. It's, I mean, listen, we could we could spend uh, another yeah. several hours talking about Hollywood depictions mm. of a figure like Douglas. Um, there but is a film in the works. It's been optioned by Netflix and uh, the Obama Film Company, Higher Ground. It has a director assigned. It has a screenplay that needs a lot of work. My role is just whatever they call me, historian, advisor, or something. But it takes forever. I mean, Jeffrey, you know this better than anybody. I can't believe they haven't just hired Jeffrey. And uh, <laughs> Ken and I could write the screenplay, for God's sake. And, and we just go from there. But that's Let not the way Let me get in that, that writer's room. I'm, I'm, I'm down <laughs> yeah, to do we'll it. We'll have a writer's room. Why not? Let's do a <laughs> seminar for a week. Yeah. And we'll come out with it. We'll come out with a screenplay. You, you mean hire me to direct it? Yeah. Right. All right. <laughs> yeah. You to direct it? Okay, fine. Too, too dashing a guy for me. I mean, he, you know, you're talking nah, about him nah, being nah, so nah, photographed. Nah, I mean, nah, that was, nah, nah. you see some of those photographs of him, you know, just a dashing guy. I don't have the hair anymore. <laughs> they can arrange that. They can arrange that. <laughs> that can be arranged. It's true. You know what? Let's, let's talk larger legacy of Frederick Douglass. Ken, I want to start with you. You know, this is your ancestor here. What to you is the lasting legacy of Frederick Douglass? When I think about Frederick Douglass's lasting legacy, it takes me back to my childhood and all of the times that people came up to me, many times with tears in their eyes, and they wanted to pinch my cheeks or give me a hug or pat me on the head. And at that time, I never really understand the emotional connection that so many people had to my ancestors. And it was many years later that a woman came up to me after an event, and she wanted to tell me that she had read Frederick Douglass's narrative. And what she wanted to tell me was that these books made her believe that she could do and be anything possible. And if she could thank my ancestors in person, she would do that. But since she can't, I become the conduit to saying thank you. But Frederick Douglass's legacy, as far as photography is concerned, is, is very important. He said, when you look at a photograph of me, you're never going to deny that I'm a man worthy of freedom, worthy of citizenship, and I never want to look like a happy, amiable, fugitive slave. And so this is why you see him. If you can visualize his look in your mind's eye, you see him with that steely glare that he had looking directly into the camera. You know, when you consider... The divisive climate in which we live now with the uh, political rhetoric and racist and sexist and xenophobic rhetoric that's out there, Frederick Douglass's words, unfortunately, still speak to us today. And I say unfortunately because we're still de dealing with many of the challenges that Frederick Douglass and the other freedom fighters who came before us had to deal with. And, you know, I was really disappointed to learn recently that a school district in Oklahoma had banned Frederick Douglass's narrative from libraries and classrooms. You know, conservative-driven wow. book bans targeting race and gender and inequality narratives are spreading across the country, you know, in this concerted effort to whitewash the truth about our nation's history and the genocide of Native American people and the enslavement of people of African descent. And so it's really important that uh, young people have an opportunity to connect 
to Frederick Douglass's words and his life story, his coming-of-age story, in the way that so many before us have done. So his legacy still speaks to us in many ways. David, from your perspective, Frederick Douglass's legacy. At the core of Douglass's life was this idea that America had a promise in its creeds that it had not lived up to, had, had not fulfilled. It looked like it never was going to fulfill it. Then it did. I mean, he's one of those rare reformers or radicals who actually lives in the, to the middle of his life to see his cause triumph. And then he lives long enough to see it all but betrayed. Mm. Uh, and if you think of his life in that kind of trajectory, you realize what you can learn from looking at the life. But last but not least, his legacy lives forever, as others have already said. In his words, there are transcendent passages, dozens and dozens and dozens of them, in Douglas editorials and Douglas speeches and in the autobiographies that are timeless. As Jeffrey was saying, you read a passage by Douglas and you think, oh, my God, you know, that's about now <laughs> or that's, a, that's about yesterday or that's about tomorrow. And Absolutely. that's who he really is. He's the person in his words that we will at least always have there, you know, to go back to and rely on and draw from. Jeffrey, uh, in your opinion, the Frederick Douglass legacy from your perspective. I hadn't realized that they had specifically banned his first narrative. That's uh, incredible banned by the same Republicans who claim him as their own. Uh, but as far as the legacy his Americanness and his importance and influence on the trajectory of our country is as central, I think, as any of the men uh, who we call founding fathers. And because he, you know, it is, he makes it his business to course correct, to write the ship, to undo to the extent that it can be the stain of that original sin. I mean, we only truly become America or begin to move toward that more perfect America by embracing his life and lives like his. And they're not many, but by embracing his story, he is one of the great Americans. We can only do ourselves a service by knowing him intimately and doing our best to honor his legacy through our daily lives. So he's a founding father of the American conscious. Uh, that's how I, I view him. A special thank you to all three of you for joining us for this discussion. This has been Making Frederick Douglass, obviously one of the most iconic figures in American history. Thank you, Jeffrey Wright. Thank you, David Blight. Thank you, Ken Morris, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Brian. This episode of Making was produced by Justin Boole and Hina Srivastava. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Special thanks this week to the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. Also, be sure to pick up a copy of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by David Blight. And of course, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave by Frederick Douglass. Check out the audio version on Apple Books, narrated by Jeffrey Wright. 
And a big thanks to you for listening. Be sure to press the subscribe button if you haven't already, and we'll see you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.